invite you to take your Bibles and open them up to 2 Chronicles this morning. We're at that time in the summer. We just finished John 6 uh, last week. And we're at that time in the summer where we've got a few different weeks. We'll be getting ready for the start of a new school year. And we'll jump into John 7 then. So we're going to take the next few weeks and do some uh, special different messages on some different things. And this Sunday and next Sunday... Pastor Charlie and I are going to teach on two different passages that we will have read. If you're doing the Revival from the Bible reading program with us, these will be passages that we have read that week. And if you're new or you missed kind of when we talked about it, Revival from the Bible, if you have your sermon note sheet and you look at the back, it's a reading program that we're doing where we read through the Bible together in a year. And every day we're reading from somewhere in the Old Testament and somewhere in Psalms and then somewhere from the Gospels, and then somewhere from the rest of the New Testament. And you might have your own kind of Bible reading plan that you're doing, and that's obviously totally fine. Our heart is just we want everybody to be in the Word. And if you don't have something that you're doing, though, I want to invite you to jump in with us, and we'll look at some things that we've seen each of these last two weekends. Well, in an alternate universe uh, somewhere, on Friday night was the opening ceremonies of the 2020 Olympic Games in Tokyo, Japan. And it was a spectacular ceremony honoring the history and heritage of the nation, everything from sumo wrestlers to Super Nintendo. Uh, you know, it was, it was a spectacle, um, but that was in an alternate universe. We're living in this one where the Olympics have been postponed now for another year. But what do you think about the Olympics? The Olympics are something for me, even as, as a sports fan, it's not like something I'm like, like so excited about ahead of time. Like, yes, the Olympics are coming. I can't wait. But it's one of those things that every four years, or I guess every two with the summer and winter, once it starts, inevitably I get sucked in. You know, because it's, it's a spectacle, the, you know, the money that gets paid for the TV rights, and then the ratings on TV, I mean, it's just astronomical. And they know what they're doing. Right? You, you turn it on thinking, oh, I'll just watch a little bit. But then you see like this, this little snippet of, hey, this person spends their days stocking groceries at a grocery store, but they, send, they spend their nights training and throwing that shot put. And now is their chance for Olympic glory. And you're like, I'm hooked. That's next, right? And it's like, no, it's in two hours. But now you're, you're hooked, and so you're going to watch the next two hours because you want to see, can this guy from the grocery store win the gold medal. Or sometimes it's just the strategy of of sports or competitions that otherwise you would never watch. Am I I the only person in the room that stayed up till 2 a.m. a couple years ago to watch the USA win the gold medal in curling in the Winter Olympics? (laughs) It looks like I might. I know some of you did because you were with me and we were watching it together. Um, But probably most of you missed that. But last four years ago with the Summer Olympics, Some of those events that really sucked me in that I'd never really paid attention to were some of the longer distance track and field events. So the 5,000 meters and the 10,000 meters. In the 10,000 meter race, they run around that track 25 times. So it's a longer race. And what sucked me in is at the beginning, you know, they're all just kind of, it looks like they're out for a jog together. And there's this clump of guys just kind of going around the track together. But as it starts to get later and later in the race, you see people starting to make their moves. And it's all about who has enough gas left in the tank. And and are they going to time it? And are they going to go too soon and run out of steam? Or are they going to stay strong 
all the way to the end. You take a race like the 10,000 meters and you compare it to the 100 meters, right? That's over in nine point something seconds that they're two different things. One is a sprint and the other is more of a test of endurance. Now, we didn't come here to talk about the Olympics today. We came here to talk about God's word. We came here to talk about what does it mean in this life to follow God? Well, what do you think following God in this life looks more like? The 100 meter dash or the 10,000 meter race. It's much more of a test of endurance. It's much more of a marathon than it is a sprint. And sometimes when you watch these events in the Olympics, you see somebody that they run out of gas, right? It doesn't matter if they're leading the 10,000 meters for the first 22 laps, if at the end they've got nothing left in the tank and they fall behind. It's not how you start, it's how you Interactive church, it's how you? Right. And the Bible makes clear the Christian life, it is a race, and it is one of endurance. And so we're looking at Second Chronicles today because we're going to look at a figure that has always intrigued me as I've read through the Bible, and it's a, a man named King Asa. Because we're going to look at Second Chronicles 14 through 16, and chapters 14 and 15, you're like, yes, King Asa, Go! You're on fire. Keep going. And then chapter 16, you're like, what happened? And he doesn't finish well, at least what we see in 2 Chronicles. And maybe that's something you've seen, where you've seen people that you've known, and they're running after the Lord, but then something happens, and they're not anymore. Maybe that's something that you've had to fight in your own life. Maybe that's where you you are today. So what can we learn from King Asa when we think about running the race of our own Christian life. So I hope you have your Bibles open, but at this point it might also be helpful to pull out that sermon note sheet. Because normally what we do is we print the passage on the worksheet. And I got a a message, you know, a picture this week uh, from my assistant as she was preparing to print the worksheet with all of 2 Chronicles 14 through 16 printed on the worksheet. And it wasn't exactly fitting. And even that would be the sermon today if we read the whole passage. So what I want to do is walk you through this outline and and tell you the story, and then we will look at some of the specific passages as we unpack this together. But it starts by introducing us to King Asa. He's the third king of the kingdom of Judah. Remember, you've got King David, you've got King Solomon, and after King Solomon, the nation splits into two, the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. And King Asa, he is the third king of the southern kingdom of Judah. So that makes him King Solomon's great-grandson. And so his father and his grandfather were kings, and they weren't that awesome. They weren't very devoted to following God like King David was. But he comes along, and it says in verse 2 of chapter 14 that Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. And we see he he breaks down altars. He commands everyone to seek God. He strengthens the military. But then, if you're looking at that outline, we see crisis number one. Crisis number one. And what happens, it says, Zerah the Ethiopian came out against him with an army of a million men. Does that sound intimidating to you? Right? And I've been on the the hill where it says they went out to make the the battle. And and you look out at the south and you just picture this army of a million 
people and you feel like this is some, must have been some scene out of Lord of the Rings, right? Where there's just armies spread out as far as you can see. But King Asa, in the face of all of that, he takes courage, he prays to God, and God provides the victory. And then we get into chapter 15, which is message number one. So after the crisis is over, there's a message, there's a prophet, a prophet Azariah. And he comes to King Asa and says, King Asa, good job. Good job trusting the Lord, and good job with everything that you're doing to seek the Lord. Keep going. And the rest of chapter 15 shows how Asa listens to the words of the prophet. He keeps going. They keep on destroying idols. They keep on seeking the Lord and worshiping him. But then we get to chapter 16, and we get to crisis number two. And in this crisis, it's the northern kingdom of Israel. And the northern kingdom of Israel is starting to move against King Asa and the southern kingdom of Judah. But this time, instead of praying to God... King Asa, he runs off to get help from the Syrians. Say, hey, can you come and help me? And, and they do. But that's what gets us to message number two. Now a prophet comes, another prophet named Hanani, and he tells King Asa, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have trusted in this other kingdom. You should have trusted in God like you did in crisis number one. And because you didn't trust God, now there's going to be more war. And instead of listening to the prophet this time, King Asa, it says, throws him in jail, and he becomes a cruel king. And then the conclusion that we see is he gets a disease, and it's severe. And even in that, he doesn't seek the Lord, but he seeks help from physicians, and he dies, and he is buried. And so, like I said, chapters 14 and 15, you're like, go, King Asa, go, King Asa, yeah, you're on fire. And then chapter 16, it's just like, whoa, what happened? And that's the question that I want us to answer today. What happened? Not so we can understand King Asa better, so that you can run the race with endurance. And so I want to point out, if you read through this text and you carefully look at the words, I want to point out some different things, three things that we can see that are different between chapters 14 and 15 and then chapter 16. And the first is there in chapter 14. If you look there in verse 11. This is now the, the Ethiopian army with a million men is there. They have drawn up for battle. This is an intimidating situation. But look, it says, And Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God. And then look at this phrase, For we rely on you. And in your name, we have come against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God. Let not man prevail against you. Verse 12, so the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. And I want you to, to focus there on that phrase in verse 11 where he says, For we rely on you. He prays and says, God, we, we're trusting in you. But then we get to chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 1. It says, in the 36th year of King Asa, Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Now, 
that might not mean anything to you, but let me put it here for us in Idaho terms, okay? Let's say that here in Meridian, we are the southern kingdom of Judah, okay? But there is a northern kingdom that we don't get along with, we're kind of enemies with, and that is Valley County, okay? Cascade, Donnelly, McCall, that's the northern kingdom. And so what happens here is that northern kingdom, they come and they, they start building a fortress in Eagle to intimidate us and to make sure, hey, we can't go anywhere that direction without passing him. And it's probably a signal we're actually getting ready to invade. We're getting ready to attack. Verse 2, then Asa took silver and gold from the treasures of the house of the Lord. So notice even where he takes it. He takes it from the temple. And he goes and he sent it to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus. And basically he says, hey, let's make a treaty. Can you help me out with the Israelites? Again, to put it in Idaho terms, now the king of Meridian is freaked out because of the king of Valley County. So he goes to the king of Coeur d'Alene and says, hey, can you help me out? And then the king of Coeur d'Alene says, sure. And he comes and he attacks McCall. And Israel is now freaking out. And they, they leave. They leave that city that they were building. And if you look at verse 6, it says, Then King Asa took all of Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its temper, with which Baasha had been building. And with them, he set up Geba and Mitzpah. So the king of Coeur d'Alene comes. He attacks McCall. Valley County people go running back up to Valley County and forget about Eagle. And we go and we take all that stuff, and we put a fort in Horseshoe Bend and in Emmett to guard all the ways that they could come down and attack us. Because... The good old king of Coeur d'Alene came and helped us out because we gave him God's money. That's, that's kind of what happens here. And notice it never mentions him praying. It never mentions him seeking God. So then the prophet comes in verse 7. At that time, Hanani the seer, that's another word for prophet, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. What phrase did I tell you to remember from chapter 14 there in the middle of his prayer? Asa says to God, we rely on you. And now the prophet is coming and saying, well, this time you relied on the king of Syria. You didn't rely on God. And even the Hebrew word for rely has this idea of, of leaning on something. I don't know if you've ever hurt your leg or your foot and you've had to, you know, use crutches, right? And you're very much, you're leaning on those crutches. You're putting your weight on those crutches. That's the idea of, of leaning, putting your trust in something in a very tangible, physical way. And we say, what happened with King Asa? Well, at the beginning, he was leaning on God. And later, he started leaning on something else. So if you want to run the race of the Christian life with endurance, point number one today, the first lesson we're going to learn from King Asa is continually lean on God. Continually lean on God. If you want to run this marathon of the Christian life well, you, you simply have to. And even, let's be clear, that's the only way you can even get into this race of the Christian life. You have to admit, I can't do it. I have to lean on God. You have to admit, and this is what we've seen so much as we look through John 6, I am a sinner. I need a Savior. I can't save myself. I can't do it. I need to lean on. I need to trust in what Jesus Christ did for me. 
which is what we sang about. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again. And that faith, that leaning on God, is what then should carry us through the entire Christian life. Where we have a confidence. God is good. God is with me. God will protect me. God will provide for me. And another important factor is, what do we mean when we say, God? Who is God to us? Look again at Asa's prayer. If you've got your Bibles open in chapter 14, verse 11, where it says, Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. He has a high view of God. When he thinks of God, he is thinking of somebody that is in control. Somebody that is able to help. And if you want to live the Christian life, you've got to have this confidence in God, this high view of God that causes you to lean on Him. That's what's going to protect us in the Christian life. That confidence in God that causes you to lean on Him, that's, that's your, your shield, so to speak. Even that's what the Bible refers to in Ephesians 6 as the shield of faith. It's what protects you. Or maybe some of you, when you think about something to protect something, maybe you think of your phone. My wife, obviously I love her. She is a a godly woman, but she has a hard time keeping her phone screen intact, okay? Um, We spent a good chunk of our marriage with her with a a phone screen that's in, in pieces, right? So now it's like when we buy her a new phone, we have to, okay, we need to buy you a case. We need to protect that phone so that when turbulence happens and as a phone gets dropped, which inevitably happens, something there is to protect it. That's what this confidence in God is like for you. Because guess what? Life is going to be turbulent. There's going to be moments in life where the phone, so to speak, is is dropped. What's going to protect you in those moments when life gets scary? Because when the Ethiopian army was coming out against him, right, that was scary. When the, when the Israel, the kingdom of Israel is intimidating him, that was scary. When you lose a job, that can be scary. When you're concerned about some health condition with your kid or you're getting older and you're concerned about your own health or anywhere in between, that can be scary. What's going to protect you in those moments? A confidence in God that causes you to rely on Him. And something else that we see here from King Asa that we need to realize is we get confused about what's really dangerous in life. Because if you read the story carefully, do any of these armies actually do anything that hurts King Asa? The answer is no. What ends up getting him in trouble? His lack of faith. Or what's the opposite of faith? Basically, it's, it's fear. His fear and failure to trust God caused way more damage in his life than what he was actually afraid of. And I've seen that true in my own life as a pastor for over a decade. I've seen that true in so many people's lives. Where their fear and their failure to trust God ends up causing way more problems than whatever it is that they were worried about or scared of. You need to realize, hey, the bigger enemy isn't those things out there that I'm concerned about. It's my own fear. That's what I need to be more concerned about. And again, if we want to just get down to very practical, what does it look like to lean on God if we have this confidence in God? If you want to maybe jot down a couple sub-points under point number one, the first is you need a strong prayer life. 
You need a strong prayer life. What does King Asa do when the army of a million people is coming to get him? He prays. And notice, it's not just even a weak sauce prayer. It is a prayer that is full of faith in a God who is there and able to help. That, that's what, what you need when the crises come in life. And too many times, we run to something else. We run to maybe just advice from somebody else. We run to trying to figure it out ourselves in, in, in maybe bad situations. We run even to, to sinful things to make us feel better. We, we think that alcohol or drugs will numb the pain and numb the fear instead of saying, no, I'm going to go to God and say, God, I know you're in control. I know you're there. I know you're strong. And I know that you hear me. There's another old hymn that puts it really well. It's called, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And it says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And this week, when you find yourself stressed out about something, worried about something, I want you to stop and ask yourself, have I prayed about this? And not just, oh, God, help me figure this out. But no, have I prayed like King Asa prays here in chapter 14? Because too many times we stop and realize, no, the answer is I haven't. I haven't taken this to God in prayer. You need a strong prayer life. Another thing that you need is you need a good memory. You need a good memory to continually lean on God. Again, in chapter 16, when the prophet now is rebuking King Asa, saying, you didn't rely on God, you relied on the king of Syria. The next thing he says in verse 8 is, were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on God, he gave them into your hand. He says, hey, don't you remember that time that God provided for you? And how many times is that true of us? Where there's something in our lives that... We're freaking out about when what we should do is first and foremost pray, and then what we should do second is remember. Wait a minute. Remember that thing that happened two years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago? And remember how God provided for me? Remember how God was faithful to me? And as Christians, there's always something that we can look back to. Remember when Jesus died on the cross for my sin and rose again? Do I really think that after all of that, God's going to stop being good and being God now? Do I really think that? We need to ask ourselves that question. That's why one of my favorite verses to quote around here is Romans 8.32, which says, If he did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? When we find ourselves in need, We need to have a high view of God that causes us to lean on Him. And that's going to look like a strong prayer life and a good memory. And without those things, we'll start to see ourselves slowing down and running out of gas in the Christian life. There's another phrase that comes up that we see both before and after in the life of King Asa. And we see it in chapter 14, starting in verse 4. It says that he commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandment. 
And then down in chapter 15, as he is reforming, well, first the prophet says to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And then in verse 12, we see, and they entered into a covenant. The nation entered into a covenant to seek the Lord. So this phrase, seeking the Lord, keeps coming up. Keeps coming up. But then in in chapter 16, one of the specific phrases that is used in verse 12, it says, in the 39th year of his reign, King Asa was diseased in his feet, and his disease became severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. So that's a clear difference. We see chapters 14 and 15 full of seek the Lord. I'm going to do that. I want the nation to do that. Chapter 16, there is a clear failure to seek the Lord. When when he was running strong, he was focusing, I guess you could say in our terms, ways we would put it today, he was focusing on his faith. He was focusing on his relationship with God. He was seeking the Lord. What does that mean practically? What does that look like? Well, a bunch of the things that we see in verses 14 and 15, or chapters 14 and 15, is he's tearing down idols and he's getting the people to worship the Lord. What does seeking the Lord look like? What does putting priority on your faith and your relationship with God look like? It looks like this, point number two. Constantly pursue worship and obedience. Worship and obedience. Those need to be our constant pursuits. And even since we're not in an alternate universe, we're in this universe, how has this year, 2020, been for you and your walk with God? Has your relationship with God been the most central thing in your life? Has it been the thing that you are focusing most of your heart and your attention on? We see King Asa so much of what comes through in his life comes through in a crisis, comes through when things aren't going well. So how is your faith doing in a year when things probably are not going according to plan? When you think about even in the Bible times, ships, when they were in a storm, when things weren't going well, when it felt like the ship was going down, what would they do? Well, many times they would start throwing stuff overboard. And what would they start throwing overboard? Well, to use a 2020 term, they would throw over the things that were non-essential. And they would hold on to the things that were essential for as long as they possibly could. What does your relationship with God look like in the storms of 2020? Is it one of the things that has basically been thrown overboard because you've got other things to worry about? Basically, what you're saying, if that's true, is ah, this is non-essential. When it's reality, is that should be the most essential thing. That should be the thing even if the ship goes down, that's the plank that we're holding on to. I am holding on to my relationship with God no matter what. If you're there in 2 Chronicles, just turn back a few chapters with me to chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And a verse you are probably familiar with, but we see this 
this phrase or something very similar to it here in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 where God is answering the prayer of King Solomon as the temple is dedicated. And in 2 Chronicles 7.14, he says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, we are not the nation of, of Israel. There is no temple that we are praying towards or should be praying towards. But do you want to see revival in the United States of America? Do you want to see God heal our land? Well, then what's it going to take? Different politicians? A better economy? No, it's going to take God's people humbling themselves, praying, seeking God's face, and turning from their wicked ways. It's going to look like God's people prioritizing worship and obedience in their own lives like never before. That's what this nation needs. I mean, it needs a lot of things. Let's be honest, it does need better politicians. But more than any of that, first and foremost, it needs stronger Christians. That's what it needs. And what's that going to look like? Humble yourself. Where's the sin in your own life? Pray. Seek God's face. Are you spending time doing that every day? Are you in the Word? Are you in prayer? Are you turning from your wicked ways? Sure, we could go on and on about all the ways our culture is wicked and needs to to turn, and it needs repentance. It's got to start with us. Seeking His face, turning from our wicked ways, and that's ultimately what we see happening in chapters 14 and 15 of 2 Chronicles. King Asa is leading the way, and the people, they're turning away from sin, and they're seeking God. Now, all of this works together, even worship. I mean, we need to be careful that when we say worship, we don't just think of what we started our our service with, singing songs. Worship, that's an expression of worship, but worship is much more than that. Worship really comes from a heart. It's an attitude that starts with, like we talked about with King Asa, a high view of God. God is holy. He is good. He is in charge. And worship really is living life with a high view of God. In another way, you might say, I've heard worship leaders say, you know, it's letting the throne set the tone for our lives. That's what worship is. And and not just here on Sunday mornings when we sing, but all day, every day. The throne sets the tone of my life. And if that's our heart, it's going to lead to obedience. Just look at this passage. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, and without faith it is impossible to please him. Talking about God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. When we have a high view of God, he exists and he rewards those who seek him. That's going to motivate the faith that leads to obedience that pleases God. And even if you're doing the revival from the Bible reading or whatever you're doing to read the Bible, three things I would encourage you to seek every day, which we talked about when we launched revival from the Bible, is learn, worship, obey. I mean, we do have to dig in and actually study so we learn new information. But then we want to see that translate into worship. That The throne is now even in a greater way setting the tone for my life 
and obedience, that I will change, that I will put away the idols in my life and grow in obeying Jesus Christ. And that's really what leads us to our last point, which is how do we respond to the Word of God? Because you look at chapter 15, and a prophet comes and gives this message to King Asa, saying, good job, keep going. And in chapter 15, verse 8, it says, as soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Oded, he took courage and put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and all the cities that he had taken. He, he listens and he does it. Chapter 16, the prophet comes to him and says, why did you trust in the king of Syria instead of trusting God? Verse 10 of chapter 16 says, then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at that time. So one time the word of the Lord comes and he hears it and he runs with it. The next time it comes, he gets angry and he puts the prophet in prison. It says right there, he was in a rage because of him. What's the difference between chapters 14 and 15 and chapter 16? Asa stopped listening to what God had to say. Point number three as we wrap up, always heed biblical instruction. Always heed biblical instruction. And the idea of heeding is not just listening to what God has to say, it's doing what it says. And to go back to you know, our Olympic analogy and an athletic analogy, right? You have to stay hungry. You have to be motivated, right? Even if you're talented as an athlete, to be at the top of that medal stand, you've got to work hard. You need what, you know, we learned from Rocky Balboa, the eye of the tiger, right? You, you, staying, hanging tough, staying hungry, that's what you need. And many times as a Christian, you see a baby Christian, and man, they're just eating up the Word of God. They're like, man, this is all new to me. I can't get enough of it. Are you staying hungry as a Christian? Man, I can't get enough of the Word of God. But it's not just that. It's how do you respond to it? And also, you'll notice the two different messages that got the two different responses from King Asa. The messages were different. One was encouraging, saying, yeah, King Asa, keep going. And that's what he did. The other was convicting, saying, Asa, what are you doing? Those are the two same messages that we're going to get from God's Word as we read it, whether you're listening to a sermon, whether you're reading it or studying it on your own. There's going to be times where God's Word is basically saying to you in your life, yes, stay strong, keep going. And there's going to be other times where the Word of God or a sermon hits you and it's basically looking at you and saying, what's wrong with you people, right? How do we respond in each of those situations? Are you open in your own reading of God, in your own listening to sermons saying, God... Don't just show me where I need to be encouraged. Show me where I'm messing up so that I can change, so that I can grow. I, I've been in, I grew up a pastor's kid, worked at church my entire adult life. I've, I've heard a lot of sermons, a lot of sermons. And I've seen people respond to sermons. And many times in sermons, there's moments where it's very encouraging, very uplifting, right? And then there's moments where sometimes it's convicting. It's, it's calling us out. It, you, as individuals, we say, it's calling me out. You know what I have never heard in, in response to the thousands and thousands of sermons I have heard in my life and seen the response to? I have never heard this comment. 
that sermon was too encouraging. I've never heard anybody say that. Well, let's think about the other side. Do you think I've heard that? Yeah. That sermon was too convicting. And that just shows you our natural response is we want to be told you're doing a good job. We don't like being told you need to change. But if we want to grow as Christians, we need to be open to that. So what's your heart when it's, you're just opening up the Bible in the morning with a cup of coffee? Or when you're sitting here on Sunday morning, is it just, all right, tell me what I'm doing awesome, God? Or is it, God, show me where I need to change, where I need to grow? And hopefully, if you're consuming from God's word, you are getting both of those things. But again, think about the Olympians. Think about the ones that aren't just there at the games. They're at the top of the podium with the gold medal hanging around their chest and their flag and their anthem being displayed. Do you think they got there because all they ever heard from their coach and their teammates was, good job, just keep doing what you're doing? Or do you think there were moments where they needed to be corrected, they needed to be trained? Every single one of us, all of us, myself included, myself probably first, we need to seek God's word saying, show me where I need to grow. The Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And one encouraging thing, even when you, we, three chapters, it's, it's clear, King Asa, he reigned for 41 years. There's a lot of stuff we're not getting in only three chapters, about 41 years. And so we don't know exactly what happened at the end, but it's clear he was honored in burial. He, he was given honor as a king. And even if you keep reading the next chapters, many times when it's referring back to good kings, it refers back to King Asa. So even though there were some stumbles in King Asa's story, the, the, it's remembered for what he did well. And even when you think about that 10,000-meter race in the Olympics, the guy that won it in 2016, Mo Farah, lap number seven, he fell down. He totally tripped up and totally ate it. But he got up, he kept running, and he won the gold medal. I don't know where this sermon finds you, but if it finds you flat on your face, I want to encourage you. The end of the story of King Asa, you know, ultimately how he was remembered is, is something good. If, you're, if this finds you on your face, stand back up this morning and seek the Lord. Continually rely on Him. Prioritize worship and obedience. Listen to what the Bible is telling you. And maybe some of you, you're looking at all this and you're an outsider and you're realizing I'm not even in the race because I've never realized I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. I've never even leaned on God to begin with. But I would encourage you, come talk to me after the service. Come find Pastor Charlie and, and talk to one of us. We would love to talk to you about that. Let me pray for all of us right now. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you how even what your word says about a king who lived almost 3,000 years ago, speaks to us today. And I pray that you would strengthen this church. I pray that you would strengthen the people in this church, God, that we would lean on you, that we would seek you like never before, God, and that we would always listen to your word and have a hunger for it. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.